Psalm 63. As we've been going through the Psalms, we're going to do Psalm 63 today. Uh, so if you're, if you're able to, then stand with me and let's look at Psalm 63. I'm going to read it and then we'll, then we'll pray. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Let me read the superscription. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Keep forgetting. All right, verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You have a seat. Jesus, you are infinitely worthy of all of our worship. And so we ask that you would... This morning, um, by the power of your spirit, fill our minds to understand your word. Um, Come now and teach us. And I I do pray especially that as we talk about worship, as we think about worship and what it means, God, that we would um, desire to think deeply about our own lives and how they give you glory. And that we would want to... um, Deeply want to live lives of worship for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Psalm 63 is on reflections on intimacy with God. And so we're talking about um, having a deep, worshipful um, experience with the Lord, which isn't just a uh, kind of a one and done, but an ongoing time of worship with God. And so, how important then is it that we worship Jesus well? How important is it? Vastly important. But um, would we say it is important? We would. Why though? Why would it be important? Um, is it just enough to say that I believe in God and my belief is enough? Or is it that we also not only should believe that we should also worship him as well? Worshiping him, does it have any value? Uh, can faith uh, just be all that's necessary uh, and worship kind of be uh, an additional accessory that you can add or not add to faith? Should worship be something that also goes about? Um, what's the first thing that you think about when you hear the word worship? What's the first thing? If you grew up in a kind of a traditional church that I did, then you kind of think of the big, huge pipe organ and you have the open, opening offering or the opening off song, the opening hymn, the offertory hymn, and perhaps the special right before the sermon where someone would sing a solo. Usually, maybe it was good, maybe it was really bad. Um, and, then, and then perhaps the, the invitation hymn that was 
you know, one or two choruses and then we're done unless Jesus moved and we sang just as I am over and over and over and over and over. Um, so worship can have like a lot of kind of uh, built in definition that I think can help us understand. Uh, and it, the definition I've written goes along with what I think the New Testament teaches us about the word worship. So in the New Testament, when you see the word worship, we just have worship and we just say, all right, there's the English word. But sometimes there's a there's two different words in the New Testament for worship. Sometimes it's proskuneo, sometimes it's laturo, and depending on the context, it just translates for us as worship. And so when we think of worship, we can just have a, a mindset of what it means. But if we can look at those two words in the Greek and we can go back and get an understanding of what they are, they have a few di- a couple different meanings, and that can inform what I think is a biblical understanding of the word worship. So you have proskuneo, which just means like to come forward and bow down. And so uh, the idea of like there's a king who's worthy, and I'm going to come forward and bow down before him because he's infinitely more worthy than anyone else in the world. Come forward and bow down. That would translate what to be would be our corporate worship experience when we with the hearts, with our hearts and our souls, bow them down in song before the Lord and we corporately worship together. So as an important aspect of worship is when we as a church sing together corporately. That's proskuneo, the come forward and bow down. But then there's also latreo, laturo, one of those two. How, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Chris, latreo, laturo. He's the Greek scholar. So, um, but the point is, it's actually to go render acts of service to the Lord. So it is not at all uh, in, a, in a public or in a, in a 21st century meaning coming into the room and singing. It's more of going and worshiping God by serving others. And so both of those are worship. So uh, when we think of worship now, we've got a New Testament kind of concept of it means to come forward and bow down and worship the king. But it also means to go out and, and care for others, practice the second greatest commandment, loving your neighbors yourself. And so if we put those together, we can hopefully get what would be a biblical understanding of worship, an inward understanding or feeling and valuing. So that's the proskuneo. And an outward action that reflects the worth of God. And so we want to have both of those going on. We want to have our hearts um, focus in on who he is and believe those things and feel those things, all of that, um, but also to go and do acts of service. When I say believe those things and feel those things, those are like massively different. One's objective, one is subjective. Hugely objective, hugely subjective. And you're like, which one? And I'm like, yes, it's both. That's the point of John 4, whenever he says to worship God in spirit and in truth. So we don't want to just worship God in spirit with no truth, where we're massively emotional about something we don't understand, because that doesn't make sense. Or the reverse, where we know a lot, but we have no emoting feelings whatsoever. We want to have both, where we worship in spirit and in truth. We really do have real emotions, the subjective sense of feeling, but we believe right things about the Lord. And so we inward feeling and valuing and knowing that also drives us to an outward action that reflects the worth of Jesus. It's an act of treasuring and savoring of our relationship with Jesus. Proskuneo and Laturo. And so we are created to do this. We are created to worship. Unbelievers and believers are created to worship. If on the way to church today you saw someone pulling a bass boat, they were going to worship this morning out on the lake as they catch some fish. We were coming to worship here at church. They were still worshiping. Um, Everybody at all times is worshiping. We're wired beings to worship. We can't help but worship. And the question is, who or what 
are we worshiping? Worship important. I came up with, if you have more, I want to know them. But I came up with at least four reasons. These aren't the four things on the TV. Uh, but I came up with at least four reasons of why worship is important. All right. So the first reason is because it starts with the Trinity. So forever, from eternity past, always, the Trinity in its form has been um, delighting in and finding their highest joy in God. And so if they were doing that to someone else, then that's God and that's who should be worshipped and not the Trinity. So since the Trinity has to find its delight in and find its highest joy in and of itself, and that's what it always does, and we are image bearers, we mirror what the Godhead is already doing, then we, the reason why worship is important is because it starts with the Trinity and we are doing what the Trinity is doing. We are delighting in and finding our highest joy in God. So that's the first reason why it's important is because it is what God himself is doing. God finds his highest treasure in himself. If anything else does that, they're a megalomaniac. But if we do that, it's unbelievably idolatrous. But if God does it, it's always right. And so we should do what God does, find our highest joy in God. Another reason why uh, worship is important is not just because it is actually doing what the Godhead does, but another reason is because you actually become what you worship. In Psalm 115, 8, it says, Those who make them, talking about idols at the time, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So whatever idol you make, you eventually, the scriptures tell you, you become like it. And so whatever it is that you could worship that's not God, God, uh, as much as you start devoting yourself to it, putting your mind into it, you actually become like it. But that's misplaced worship. But there is this amazing thing of rightly placed worship is if you worship Jesus, well, that's true. You become like him, which is what we want. So another reason why worship is important is because you, you become what you worship. Worship towards Jesus will push us to become more like him. So it starts with the Trinity. You become what you worship. The next thing I've already said, which is largely the dominant point of Romans 1, is you and I were created to worship and glorify Christ. God has created us as worshiping beings and it's not just meant to fall short on created things. It's only meant to use created things as, as a means to the end, which is God. Things are fine as long as they direct your heart to God. I've heard Piper say, drinking a glass of orange juice and eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich should not terminate on that. Like, oh, this is so good. It's these things are so wonderful. Thank you, God, for making these wonderful tastes, these wonderful things that I can eat. Thank you for keeping me alive with these things. All of it is always supposed to direct you and fill in the blank with anything that you can have direct you towards God. You're created to worship God, not the creator, but God himself. And lastly, and this isn't something maybe that we always think about, but it's absolutely true. Another reason why you should worship, especially in the corporate setting, 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that it's actually evangelistic. Whenever unbelievers come and see you worshiping, they fall down on their faces and they say, truly there is a God among you. Rightly placed worship in the corporate setting is actually evangelistic. It fulfills the great commission, which is not something that we really think about. Those are at least four reasons why worship is important. It starts with the Trinity. You become what you worship. You're created to worship, and it's evangelistic. Now, over to Psalm 63, where the main teaching is going to be about worship. David here is in the wilderness. Um, you can see as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, he's out in the wilderness. This is likely, um, what, what's likely going on when he's writing this is from first, I'm sorry, second Samuel, second Samuel chapter 15. 
um, Absalom, his son, is conspiring and trying to take over the throne. And David doesn't want to kill his son uh, and retreats into the wilderness. If you look at verse 13 of 2 Samuel 15, it says he's fleeing Jerusalem and he's going out. If you go to the very end there in verse 23, it says he's passing on towards into the wilderness. And so this is likely what's going on. He's retreating away. His son's trying to take his throne. Uh, and so he's getting away. And as he's getting away, he's in a, um, a desperate moment here. He's in a, a place in his life where things are not going well uh, in his life. It's a wilderness. Uh, what he's doing in the very beginning here is he's, he's going to compare the contours of the geography around him. This is wilderness. It's a dry and weary place. This place doesn't have a lot of stuff around it that can nourish me. That's what my soul feels like. My soul feels dry. My soul feels malnourished. And so just like food and water would nourish me, Jesus right now would nourish me. So he's describing his setting and saying my soul feels the same way. And that just means like, I think we can all like understand that there's been times in our life where we just feel dry spiritually. I feel dry right now. My soul feels dry. And so what he's going to do in the first four verses is describe that very familiar part that we've all had a dry soul. So verses one through four is where he's going to talk about how my soul's dry and I'm thirsting for God. I really want to have a time of deep intimacy with God. It's not happening right now, but I want it to happen. That's the first section of Psalm 63. But at verse five, there's a switch to where it's no longer longing and wanting to have it happen. He's actually arrived to that place where he's no longer dry, but actually really in a good spot spiritually. And so in verse five through eight, he's going to describe what it's like to feast on the Lord in worship. And so those are kind of the two ideas of what's going on. It's going to tell us some intimacy, uh, reflections on intimacy with the Lord. And so ESV study Bible given us a broad understanding of what's going on here, because as we read it, it's going to sign, sound like lament. It's going to sound like how sorrowful he is. But this uh, comment helps us maybe see that there's more going on. The psalm opens, as it were, a lament, seeking God in a terrible time of trouble. And yet the overall flow of the psalm is actually one of confident expectation. So if you're in a dry spell, spiritually, what the psalm is helping you see is you can have a confident expectation in the hardest times that the Lord is going to do something in your heart to restore you out of this. So he says, hence it is better to see the psalm as enabling each of God's people to develop confidence during their times of trouble. In particular, the psalm inculcates the confidence that the worshiper will indeed be able to return to the sanctuary of God. You can see that in verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. I can remember the time whenever that happened. Oh, it was great. But that's not happening right now. But he recalls of it in verse 2. And so he goes on to say, biblically then, uh, don't miss this. I don't want to breeze past this so you miss it. Hear this sentence. This is super important. Biblically, the highest privilege a mortal can enjoy is to be a welcome member in the worshiping congregation. Biblically, the highest privilege a mortal can enjoy is to be a welcome member in the worshiping congregation. One of the best things that we can have happening in our life is to be a person in a church in corporate worship under the word and singing with our fellow believers and brothers and sisters in Christ. It's one of the best things that can happen for us. 
So in this psalm, he's instilling such a confidence and enables the singers then, therefore, to treasure and worship, uh, treasure worship as the gift that it is. Worship itself is a gift. Life has put David in a dry spell. Life is difficult for him right now, and it's hard to worship. What, what's going on? Well, the first thing that we know, that's tough. Perhaps you have someone in your life right now that you love deeply that is wayward away from the Lord, and you can understand how that can make your soul despair. That's what's going on. And if there's, if there's anything that's not necessarily obvious, the job isn't going so well right now. Like David, uh, the king is, um, the people aren't following him right now. The son's trying to take over. So, so the job is not going great right now. Um, maybe that's for you. The job isn't going so great right now. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you work 75 hours a week or anywhere in between um, or just things are difficult in life, uh, we can see some thoughts on worship and the dry spell of life. Uh, and maybe you're experiencing these right now. And as I've said, verses 1 through 4 talk about the thirsting or the desiring or the wanting. The vision of God is complete in David's mind, but his flesh faints for it because he isn't ascertaining or taking hold of it in verses 1 through 4. But then in 5 through 8, it's actually now I am there. I have arrived to this place where I can fully experience and delight in the vision of God is becoming clear to me. And oh, how wonderful it is. So verses 1 through 4. Savoring God through thirsting. This is when you're in the tough spot. This is when you're in the tough spot. Verses 1 and 2. Oh God, you are my God. Um, the entire psalm is built on that phrase. The entire psalm is built on that phrase. Now, don't, don't miss the repetition of you. I could go through it, and uh, I've, I've gone through it and, and circled all the you's. Uh, in red in my little Psalm 30, 63, but just because I wanted them to stand out how much David is really making sure his heart and his mind and his soul is focused on God. You are my God, and earnestly I seek you, thirst for you, faints for you, upon you, beholding you, because you're, you, your steadfast love, my, I will praise you, I'll bless you. In your name I'll lift my hands, I'll praise you, I'll remember you, I'll meditate on you. You're my help, you're my shadow, your right hand upholds me. So over and over, he's pushing his soul to remember that it's about him. But everything's built on, oh God, you are my God. It's just showing that he's a man acquainted with God, not someone distant from, from him. So just before we go any further, let's make sure this is a phrase we can say. Oh God, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, you're my God. Nothing else. You are my God. This means that when he thirsts spiritually, he will thirst for Jesus alone and nothing else. Can we say that with the psalmist? When I thirst... I will thirst for Jesus alone and nothing else. When he seeks, he will seek God and God alone. And he knows when he seeks, God will meet his need. Nothing else. But I know that when I do, God will be there. God will meet my need. This can be for you as well. You can be one that is familiar with the Lord so much so that when you thirst, you only desire him. When you seek, you will only seek him. And you know that he will actually meet your needs in these times. He will come to you and give you all that you need for spiritual nourishment. So, A, number A under Roman number one, we should seek intimacy with Jesus for spiritual nourishment. The reason why you should make sure your life is dominated by worship. 
by worship, which is, we defined this already. Worship is an inward understanding, feeling, and valuing, and believing, and an outward action that reflects the worth of Jesus. The reason why your life should be dominated by those things is because when you worship, you nourish your soul. When you worship, as you worship. Oh God, you are my God. So he's saying, earnestly I seek you. And when I seek you, earnestly I seek you. Not half-heartedly, not barely, not when it's convenient. Earnestly I seek you. And when that does, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as a dry and weary land where there is no water. So when I seek you, you're going to take my soul and my flesh and you're going to restore those things. You're actually going to nourish me. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He, he needs to be nourished. And so if our affections are just not there for Christ or we've had down times in our life or we've lost our child or we've lost our parent or our marriages isn't going well or we have wayward children or we have addictions that we can't kick or just a difficult time at the office or a difficult time at home with children every day and you're just tired. All of these things are crying out for spiritual nourishment and you need and the only thing you need is Jesus. And verse 2 gives us a very practical way to think about spiritual nourishment if you're in the dry spell. Now, this is amazing, I think, but not something that maybe we think of right, right off. It's a way that God gives you a way to have spiritual nourishment. Look what he says. Um, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. So he's in the wilderness, and as he's way off, away from being at the temple and seeing the worship of God, he's like, man, I remember that one time back in the sanctuary when we were worshiping. That was awesome. And he's actually remembering that as a source of, as I remember that experience where I worship Jesus and how great it was. I'm going to use that as a source for spiritual nourishment right now. Which means, if you're in a dry spell, I mean, just super practical. If you're in a dry spell, it's good to reflect back on times of great spiritual um, worship that you've had with your church family or, or in any other church you've ever been in where you really know, like, that, I remember that moment. And it was so intimate and so deep and so good. It's good to remember back to those times and let it be a source of spiritual nourishment for you in this moment. That's what he's trying to tell you, which is awesome. It's not something that we think of necessarily right away. But some of us can be in, in a wilderness spiritually, and the recollection of these sweet times of worship may be all we have in those times of uh, distance. It may be all we have. So let's talk through then, super practically, what that means then about corporate worship. What does it mean like walking in this room every Sunday, what does it mean? It means, um, what, what causes that to happen? It means this. This is what causes it to happen. That when we sing, we sing um, about the truth of Christ revealed to us in the gospel. The content of what we treasure in this room when we worship Jesus together through song is important. So when David's looking back, he's not like, oh man, uh, Schmiegel really played the guitar awesome that day. That was awesome. That's not the point. It's not how great the music was. It's who we sang about. So whenever we th we're in the dry spell and we're like, 
I remember that. What we want to remember is the content of the truth of Christ revealed to us in the gospel. If we're having trouble worshiping, we remind ourselves of the gospel. And even the times we sang about the gospel, it should be something that points us to and focus our minds to how awesome it was. No matter, the point isn't like the band was loud that day and they really sounded good. That's great. We want the band to sound good. But what we don't want to is, as we look back, is just think, oh, the music was great. Music is a means to an end. It's never the end itself. Just like uh, orange juice and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Music is just a means. And so what should it look like? It should mean when we worship together that our head and our heart are both fully engaged. We worship God in spirit and in truth. We are emotional about what's going on, properly emotional, but also mindful of exactly who God is. We don't, we don't act like we don't know who God is, and we don't just emote for emotion's sake. We know who God is, and we worship him properly. And so that's what it should look like. And the end, then, therefore, as we worship together corporately, is for Jesus to be glorified, not for the band to be awesome. If the band's awesome, I love it. That's great. But the point is that we have glorified Jesus together. So how should you do it, then? What does that mean for you? Like, practically, when I'm worshiping FUD, and I'm singing, what does it actually look like? That's what you should do. And you should hold nothing back for Jesus. Now, that's different for everybody. Some of you can, you know, can do the, you know, I'm carrying the TV, but that's all I can do. Whatever that, there's a comedian that does the, the, the 17 different stands of the, of the hands, you know, like whatever this is, it's the touchdown or whatever it is. Like, you can watch that. I can't remember his name. You can Google that, but it's funny, right? But my point is like, you're, you're somewhere on that scale, or maybe you're just, you know, you're here, and that's all you can do. I don't care. Like, that's not the point. The point is, there certainly is something going on in your heart, but there's absolutely something about outward expression. And wherever God has wired you, that's what you should do, and you should hold nothing back to whatever he's wired you to do. Um, exactly the way he's wired you is what you should do. And what can it do for you then? It can build you up, exhilarate you, strengthen you, reconnect you, or connect you for the first time to life, beauty, vitality, meaning through the person and work of Jesus. That's what it does. So that means when we come in here to, sing, to, to sit under the word, when it's time to sing, um, it's good for you to stay in here and not get coffee because you could have a great, unbelievable, meaning worship time through song that five years from now can be an absolute source for you in a, in a dry spell. Take advantage of every opportunity you get here in the worship center so that whatever happens for you one day when you're in a dry spell, you don't know what the Lord is going to provide on every Sunday. You can point back to and say, oh, man, I, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And Jesus, it was great. It was really great. It was really great. And for us, for believers then, therefore, it means practically we're encouraged. And for unbelievers... They're actually evangelized. And so since that's the case, we can see just how unhelpful it is for us to come to church and not choose to worship God corporately or engage with God corporately. It doesn't help us in the long term at all to not do that. Recalling sweet, intimate, beautiful times of corporate worship can actually be the fuel that we need to make it through wilderness times in the future. And so if we're thinking about Proskuneo Lutero, whenever we go render acts of service to the Lord... And worship God, that can fuel us that when we come in here and worship corporately, that we'll actually want to sing more. And vice versa. 
Whenever we're in here more and we're actually engaging and singing, it can be the fuel that can actually send us to go out and worship Jesus in the city by telling other peoples and rendering acts of service. And they feed one another in this kind of, not, you know, like one of those coins where it just goes down into the hole. Like, flip that thing up and it just, it just keeps going up, up, up. And so our thoughts should be then, therefore, when we come here, um, I can express thankfulness to God because I'm receiving from him. And when I come in here, I want to see more of him. I want to experience more of him. I want to know more of him. I want to sense more of him. I want to see more of me die. I want to see more of him live. I want to lose the old man, give God more power because he's why I'm here. He's what I'm after. He's all I want. That's what I want every time I come here is to know him. So point number A is that we should seek intimacy with Jesus for spiritual nourishment. Every opportunity we get to worship Jesus corporately, individually, or as we render acts of service, we should always take advantage of it because those things actually build for us spiritual nourishment, especially in the dry places. That's verse 1 and 2. Now when you get to verse 3 and 4, we're going to see something else. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Number B, our outward expressions of worship should show that our inward belief about God, about God is that his love is better than life. So I want to make sure you see this, okay? What I'm saying is your outward expressions of God in worship, the physical things you do, leave during worship, put on display that you really do believe that God's steadfast love is better than life. Now, you can really believe that and have no outward expressions of worship. Yeah, I get it. But that's not how these verses are saying it. These verses are saying it that our outward expressions of worship put on a visible display that inwardly we really do believe that his steadfast love is better than life. You'll see that in verses 3 and 4. I'm going to go backwards from 4 up. Watch. Look at the outward displays of worship. In your name I will lift up my hands. That's outward. I will bless you as long as I live. That's using the mouth to do it. And he even says it again in the end of three. My lips will praise you. These are external forms of worship. And they follow that first statement. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Because I really believe that your steadfast love is better than life. I will externally do these things. So our outward expressions of worship show that our inward belief about God is truly that. His steadfast love is better than life. It matters how our expressions of worship look. Not showy, not so other people see wired the way that God's wired you, but certainly it matters. Um, we're not stoic automatons that just stand there and read words on a screen in a certain key. That is not what singing is. That is not what's supposed to happen. So let's go through verse 3 and 4 and verse 3 itself is tough. Read it. I mean, this is, look what he says. Because your steadfast love is better than life. Stop. I mean, seriously. Do you honestly believe this? Do you honestly believe right now that his steadfast love is so great that if it was literally removed from your life for the rest of your life, that you would rather go ahead and die because his steadfast love is gone. Because your steadfast love is better than life. If that was removed, I would rather just die because it's gone. And if I don't have that, what's the point? 
because you're st- you, we have to say with that first premise of because your steadfast love is better than life, we have to say agree before we even get to the external things. But that is a massive agreement. Do I really believe that God's steadfast love is better than life? Paul says it this way, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul's just saying it in a different way than David. It seems that we are truly to yearn for Jesus' presence. Tozer's kind of famously been said about worship. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. What is our mental image? Is it just base and low or is it massively high and pure? Um, Because what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We should have the loftiest thoughts there are about God. And then I think with David and Paul, We can really start with by saying, because your steadfast love is better than life. If God's steadfast love, his chesed love was actually removed from me, I would just rather die. What's the point if I don't have that? This is what he says. He bases everything else on that. And we know that he really believes that. We know that he really yearns for it because I've already said the you, 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 you over and over. You're my God. I seek you. I thirst for you. I faint for you. I look at you. I... Behold your power. I behold your steadfast love. I praise you. I bless you. Your name I lift up. I praise you. I remember you. I meditate on you. You're my help. You're my joy. Like we see that this is what he believes. Your steadfast love is all I think about. It's better than life. Therefore, I believe it. And so I want to praise you. Piper says this about this particular verse. He says, when David says that the love of God is better than life, and therefore better than all the beauty that life means, he's not denying that all these good things come from the love of God. So this just means like every good thing you have, food, family, a house, cars, being able to get places, like every gift you have, you have these things because God's given to you. And he's not saying that you should just like think, these are awful. Like that's not the point. He's saying when David says the love of God is better than life and therefore better than rather, that if our hearts settle on these gifts, even gratefully settle, like, oh, thank you for these things, and we settle, even gratefully on the beauty of the gift and don't yearn for the infinitely greater beauty of the giver, then we're just idolaters and not worshipers of God. Our worship never terminates on the gift. It always um, goes to the giver. So then, practically, is there anything in your life that competes with your affections for God? No, 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 no. Not really. Like, stop and think. Is there anything that competes with your affections for God? What is it? Why would you not want to take it out of your life or massively reduce its influence in your life? Is there anything in, you, in your life that you think is better than just having Jesus Christ? Now, that's 3A. But then we have this little thing here in 3A. B and four, which I think are important, which we talked about. We believe that his love is better than life. But then he has this part where he says, outward expressions show that we believe it's better than life. So here's some more questions. Are there any outward expressions of worship in your life that do not show that your inward belief is that Jesus is better than life? A way that we can show that Jesus' life or Jesus' love is better than life is by worshiping him, blessing him, as long as we live and lifting our hands. Lifting our hands can be weird, but I was just thinking about this this week. 
this is like 3,000 years ago. And it was a, an acceptable expression of worshiping Jesus. 3,000 years ago, it's been innate as part of who humans are. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, I want all men to lift holy hands. That was 2,000 years ago. You would think, after clear scripture, that we would finally catch up to this truth. Like, lifting hands is something that he's innately made us want to do when we worship. Now, I'm not saying you don't love God if you don't lift your hands. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that. You've been wired a certain way. But what's clear is um, the psalmist and Paul and the Bible seem to think that lifting hands towards the Lord is doing something. It is an expression. And we don't have to get to Psalm 150 where it says dancing. It, it's in there. It's actually dancing. That's tough for Baptists. But, you know, that's up to you. But my point is this. Um, what we need to see here is visible worship that looks like the way we're wired. I don't know the way you're wired, but I think that however you're wired, you should worship Jesus with no hindrances. And that visible display and the way that he's wired you, for David it is lifting his hands, blessing him, and with his lips he's going to sing, and I imagine he's a good singer, in key. But our outward expressions of worship and the way that God's wired you show that the inward belief about God is better than life. Well, I do believe that. I believe that God's steadfast love is better than life. And so I want my outward expressions of worship to match that. And we all should want that. And so um, we see here then uh, in this challenge is that we should deeply desire uh, in these corporate times of worship to connect our minds and our hearts to the Lord so that we show that his steadfast love is better than life and it builds for us a bank of experiences that when we're in a dry spell later we can look back and say I have looked upon him in the sanctuary corporate worship is massive it is massive it's not the time to go get coffee and use the restroom unless you just have to and then you should come right back um there's a there's an experience that I want but I'm in a dry spot and I really want to get it but it's not quite there Well, verse 5 through 8 is, I have taken hold, and now here I am. And this is what feasting feels like. I'm actually getting to feast. I'm not in the dry spell anymore. I'm in this luscious garden of feasting on and having intimacy with Jesus. And these are my experiences. So just remember, as we're in this part, that God has actually created you to delight in God. You were created to feast on his glory. Psalm 37 Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Matthew thirteen forty four, the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this is what it's like. It's like a treasure hidden in a field, which the man found and covered it up. And then, what? And it's like obligation, filled like, well, since I found God, I guess I got to go sell everything I had. And so, so I found God. No, in his joy. I found God in his joy. I'm going to sell everything I have and I'm going to have that field. I want the kingdom of God. We were wired to feast on God's glory. We were created to find our highest pleasures and joy and delighting in God's glory. And that's what we have now in 5 through 8. Savoring God through feasting. Savoring God through feasting. So, there's a, an amazing kind of a benefit as we do this. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches 
of the night. This declaration where he says, my soul will be satisfied. He's helping himself see when the time of feasting comes, there's never going to be a time where God will not satisfy my soul. There's no lack in the resources of God that when I finally feast on and have an intimate time of worship and experience of delighting in the wealth of God's glory, that afterwards I'm going to be like, well, you know, it's all right. It's not going to happen. Ever. I, my soul will be satisfied. Just like if you were to eat the fattest and the richest food and you're like, oh, I'm so full. When you feast on Jesus spiritually and you have this unbelievable time of of uh, soul-satisfying intimacy with God, your soul will be satisfied. That's what he's saying. My soul will be satisfied. And so when that happens, the more you grow into it. This is where we see in verse A, or number A. The more we have deep intimacy with Jesus, the more we understand that we were created to and delight in the wealth of God's glory. So the more we do it, the more we grow into it. Calvin, my soul will be satisfied as with rich and fat food. Calvin says, obtaining a rich and abundant measure of every blessing is what David is doing um, that could call for thanksgiving and praise. He is obtaining a rich and abundant measure of every blessing that calls for his thanksgiving and praise. He is obtaining it all as he feasts on Jesus. And so if a time of feasting has been given to you as a blessing, Because they don't come often. But when this comes to you, a key question I think that we can ask ourselves is, am I even hungry right now? Am I even hungry? Or have I filled my mind and my soul with so much junk of the world, I don't even feast on God? I think it's best illustrated by this story. I've read it a long time ago. I don't know if it's been a while. But I want to give us an illustration of what I mean when I ask, are you even hungry? If the feast comes, the table of God's presence, which is the the truth of his word, we can sit at it and feast. But sometimes and too often, we're so full of junk that we're not even hungry. And spiritually, we could even be starving to death. We can settle for garbage instead of feasting on the nourishment that God's word richly provides to us. Then he tells the story of this man named Chris. Chris um, gave an example of what this is like. He worked, this guy Chris, in Calcutta, India, for Mother Teresa when she was alive. There's a place called the House of the Dying. This House of the Dying um, was in Calcutta, which is the poorest, one of the poorest cities. They had 13 million people that were destitute. 13 million people that were, uh, roughly 70% of their population are homeless. And they're absolutely uh, destitute. Um, The... Air pollution is oppressive there. There's poverty and disease everywhere. There's death everywhere for most people. And usually every morning, the city maintenance workers will go and just find dead bodies on the sidewalks and have to pick them up. Uh, And so his job in Calcutta as he was there, uh, whenever he was there, is uh, Mother Teresa offered this place called the House of the Dying. She hated that people were dying on the streets at nine people that would show them some care in their last hours. And so Chris's job was to go out on the street and find people that were going to die. Like, be able to look at them and say, you've got hours. I want to bring you back to the house of dying and let you die with dignity. These last hours. This, is, this was his job. He would go out there and find people that were you know, under a day. I don't know how you know that, but I guess you get good at it. Their goal was not to cure. 
There was no cure. Their goal was to bring them there so they had a place to have uh, death with dignity and they would share the gospel with them and they could die in peace. When they would walk down the streets, there were thousands of older men and women. They were coughing up their lungs day after day and his ministry was to go, invite them and say, come with me and I'll give you a place to lie down for your last hours. And upon arrival, whenever he would find them, he would bring them in and this is what they would do. They would uh, shave their heads. They would shower them. They'd give them a bowl of hot food. They would take away all their ragged, soiled clothing and give them some clean clothes. And then they would sit with them uh, in these last hours as they coughed up their lungs. They would cough them up into a jar and just pass it around. And when it was time to cough, they'd give it again and it'd keep going around until the jar was full. And they would throw that jar in the garbage along with the soiled clothes and the shaved hair and the scraps of food. And they would all go into the garbage just full of clothes and infested hair and maggots and whatever else. And they would bring lepers in and the lepers' flesh would rot off. Their noses and fingers and toes would be missing. And the clothes just stunk of rotting flesh. And they would throw all this into the trash And some of them had huge, pus-filled, poisonous diseases, and they would take the syringe and extract all the pus and throw it away, and they would just use the needle over and over. It didn't matter. Why would it matter? Until it was just completely full, until it was so dull, and they they couldn't pierce the skin, and they would throw that into the garbage. All this would go into the garbage. Children with HIV would come into there uh, as they were um, finding last days of, uh, of, of being able to live. And this guy, Chris, said that we prayed that the crying wouldn't stop. As long as the crying didn't stop, it meant they were alive, although listening to them was agonizing. But if the crying stopped, it meant they died. And that was distraught for them. And then he says this, the thing I hated the worst out of any part of the job is not going to find the people, but it was taking out the garbage. The worst part was taking out the garbage because the stench was almost unbearable. There was disease and ragged clothing and half-eating food. And I begged the people not to, don't make me take out the garbage because it haunts me forever whenever I took it out for the very first time. As soon as I walked out of the back door towards the dump to throw it away, children from all over came out of the alleys and rushed towards me and ripped all the bags out of my hand and ripped them open. And whatever they could find in there for food, they would, amidst all of the other things that were in there, hair and leprosy and everything, they would rip it open just trying to find food. And he would scream, don't eat this garbage. It's full of disease and death. But they were so hungry, they would eat garbage because it was all they could find. They didn't have any other choice. And he would weep out loud as he saw them scramble through the spilled jars of disease and stained clothing and rotting flesh and use syringes just to find some scraps of last night's dinner that a dying person didn't eat. And this is what he says. It's a disturbing image, absolutely. But this is what's sometimes going on with us spiritually. We're feasting at the dumpsters of filling our souls with garbage rather than the Bible. We eat garbage every time we fill our minds with anything the world has to offer anytime we hurt someone intentionally anytime we value the praise of man over the praise of god anytime we try to get revenge on anything on anybody anytime we put anything in the place of god's our hearts can be so full of junk that we're not actually hungry for the real satisfying nourishing word of god and so our souls can be so full of garbage that we don't even recognize our need for god's food and so when i talk about feasting, I think one of the key things to make sure we ask ourselves is, are we even hungry for the Lord? And if we're not, why? Are we feasting on things that aren't the Lord? 
the more we have deep empathy with Jesus, the more we understand that we are created to delight in the wealth of God's glory. So we're even hungry. Notice how, he, how serious David takes it. Look what he says in the next verse. I will remember you on my, when I'm on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Not only when I'm consciously awake, but even when I go to bed and I have those you know, times where I can't fall asleep, instead of dwelling on that, I'm just going to say, all I'm going to do is think about God. Now, if you're one of those people that can fall asleep in five minutes, everybody hates you. Because <laughs> I can't do that. And it drives me insane. It takes me at least 30 to 45 minutes, sometimes an hour, just lay there and you look at your clock and like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe how much time. Okay, and you do the math. If I go to bed right now, I'll get, I'll get this much sleep. And then you look at it again like, oh, now another hour went by. Well, if this is you, this verse is for you. Psalm 63, 6. In those moments, instead of meditating on the troubles of your life, meditate on the Lord. Meditate on him in all watches of the night. Don't revert back to the worries of the day and our, um, let our thoughts wander around at night. And I would maybe even say, if you're like me, especially at night, dwell upon and meditate on the name of God and the pleasure of getting to know Jesus Christ. This is what feasting is. Because the more we do that, the more we understand that we're actually created to delight in the wealth of God's glory and the more we will do it. This is what feasting is. And then, we see next here, notice what he says, for you have been my help and the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. David recognizes that I don't have another source of help but you. There are um, substitutes that I can put in that will never ever work. They'll never ever do the job. They're poor substitutes. Any substitute is a poor substitute. And so you've been my help. In the shadow of your wings, I'm going to sing for joy. That's all I want. So, B, the deeper our intimacy with Jesus develops, the more that we're aware that he alone is our help and joy. There's this place in John where Jesus, John 6, he just given this really hard teaching. And after he gave the hard teaching, a lot of the people started to leave. They're just like, this, this teaching's too hard. They all start to leave. And he looks at the 12 disciples and looks at them. And usually Peter's, you know, more ready, fire, aim, and he gets the answer wrong. But he nails it this time. He's like, so where are we going to go? What are you going to do? And this is what Peter says. He says, where are we going to go? You have the words to eternal life. I mean, where else am I actually going to go for help and joy? It's just you. There's nowhere else to go. And where Peter is declaring there, I think, is the point that David is at, which is what we should be at. The deeper our intimacy with Jesus get, grows, the more we realize, where else are we going to go? Nothing else satisfies like Christ. And then, therefore, we realize that he alone is our help and our joy. There's nowhere else to go. David, Calvin says this about David. He says, David was resolved to rejoice and triumph under the shadow of God's wings. As the feelings, as feeling the same peace and dissatisfaction and reliance as his protection, as he had never had any danger at all. Meaning this, all right, let's make sure you get it. He's saying he was in a difficult time, and therefore he knew in the difficult time, like all of us, when things get really bad, we're like, all I have is God. 
But in our North American industrious self, whenever we can actually produce things and get things pretty well, the, the need for God can kind of wane because we're, we're industrious. All he says is, Jesus alone is my only portion. I don't need anything else. I'm, going to, I'm resolving to rejoice and triumph only under the shadow of, of God's wing, whether there's difficulty or not. So break the North American industrious mindset that says, I can do things myself. You can't. I can't. We can't. Then he says this amazing statement. Don't miss this first part of eight because it's just unbelievable what he says. And then you see the second half and you're like, okay. It's a bold statement. My soul clings to you. It's a bold statement that he makes. Without the second half, how could he say this? My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. The only way our soul will cling to him is because God's mighty hand is going to do it. It's all for his glory. Calvin points this out, this bold statement. To say that he would cleave to God with such an unwavering purpose at all hazards might have sounded like the language of a vain boaster had he not qualified the assertion by adding that he too would only be able to do this in as far as he was actually sustained by the hand of God. So praise the Lord if you can say with David, my soul is clinging to the Lord. Don't ever stop praising the Lord for that. And when that's happening, realize because his mighty hand is upholding you. Therefore, he's infinitely worth even more glory than you can imagine. And whenever we do that, we see we're even more aware that he alone than therefore is our only help and our only joy. So how does Psalm 63 point us to Jesus? How does Psalm 63 point us to Jesus? Well, it points us to Jesus because we need to be able to say with the king in verse 11 this. But the king, referring to himself in the, first, in the third person, will rejoice in God. We should be able to say, based on these things, how does it point us to Jesus? Well, because what Christ has done for me on the cross, then I also will rejoice in God. I'm going to rejoice in God. So here's how I want to do it. If we're having trouble worshiping, if we're having trouble worshiping with our lives, um, I, want to, I want to tell you how Psalm 63 points to Jesus. But... This is what I want you to do, if you want. I'd like it if you would. Close your eyes. And I'm going to read the Bible to you. And as I read this, I want you to think on every word that's being said to you about what Christ has done. And let Psalm 63 and what we've talked about worship and what you hear about what Christ has done cause your heart to worship Jesus as you hear these words. This comes from, you know, one of the most popular chapters in the Bible. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, separate, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure 
Let neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things else come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how Psalm 63 points you to Jesus. It reminds you of this. This is who we worship, Jesus Christ. So seek to know him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Know the love of Christ for you. And this is where you worship like you were created to worship. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love, your mercy. Thank you for words like this that you inspire David by the power of the Holy Spirit to write for our benefit. Whenever we are just so desperate to be worshipers of you, you write these amazing words that help us understand what it means to worship you. Encourage us with all the practicalities of what worship can do. How it can, having sweet times of worship can actually empower us in the future to look back at sweet times of worship. We're in those times, I pray that we would come out of them. But also, God, when we're in actual times of feasting, that we would feast on you alone, that our souls would actually be hungry for you. We love you, Lord. We ask for your sweet mercies upon us as we desire to live lives of worship for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.